um, it really felt that way. Like, how dare you be talented? How dare you want to be independent? How dare you want to pursue your dream? Little girl, sit down over there. Um, and it was like, it was, it was definitely like a slap across the face. It was a reprimand, not just for Jenny, but the audience, because we saw Jenny's talent and we were invested in her too. Jenny could have been a really inspirational, motivational character on a show where all the other girls were just overly invested in their relationships and their petty little lives. And the show took that away from us. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's this Jenny's plotline is one where it's, hello everyone this is alex and this is em welcome to the latest episode of the good the bad the basic this is a podcast for nostalgic gen x and millennials and binge watchers of all ages on this podcast we'll be discussing what we love what we hate and what was just a little bit problematic about the tv and movies that we're addicted to and do a little bit of rewriting when necessary. On today's episode, we'll be discussing one of the most iconic teen series of the late 2000s, XOXO Gossip Girl. Though the WB had struggled with series like Dawson's Creek and Smallville, the CW was in a major low and needed a way to reach out to younger millennials and older Gen Z, and Gossip Girl more than delivered. Airing from 2007 to 2012 for a total of six seasons and 121 episodes, Gossip Girl was a series that helped create the CW that we know today and make the network a contender again. Gossip Girl's style and aesthetic also inspired other series on other networks like Pretty Little Liars and the CW's own Carrie Diaries. So what exactly made Gossip Girl such a hit? Stay tuned. All right, um, Alex, why don't you kick things off? I know you are a big fan of Gossip Girl and you were so excited to do this episode. Yes, I am. Um, I love Gossip Girl. I I don't know that it holds up, but I think it there's like a big, there's a just definitive sort of uh, nostalgia about it that um, doesn't, that always, you know, happens when I watch it. So Gossip Girl is also created by um, Stephanie Schwartz and Oh my God. I was, that's, that's a lie. Stephanie Savage and Josh Schwartz. Um, and it's based off of the young adult book series, Gossip Girl, uh, by Cecily Von Ziegler. A lot of similarities, um, to it and the OC. In fact, I think there's, there's not a single plot line, um, from the OC that Gossip Girl doesn't replicate. I think it ends up replicating all of them at one point or another, but uh, with obviously completely different characters and completely different motivations. I think particularly like when watching uh, the OC and Gossip Girl back to back, Gossip Girl lives in a heightened reality, a reality that like isn't quite real. And it's interesting to see like how, how radically different the two shows are, even though like they're both sort of like teen dramas. Um, 
for me, like one of the biggest things is on the OC, no matter what sort of silly situation that they put like Seth Summer, Ryan and Marissa in, the OC had a tendency to always bring it back in like into a, a real to make it feel real and like real life. The stories would always play out in a way that felt very grounded, felt very real. Whereas Gossip Girl, whenever they get put into silly situations, it just gets even sillier um, in terms of like plausibility and in reality. But I think that works for 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 Gossip Girl. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I definitely think don't think Gossip Girl has aged well. In fact, the first time I watched Gossip Girl was about a year after the series had ended, and I just binge-watched the whole thing on Netflix. And I remember thinking at the time that the show was, like, for me, like, the encapsulation of the term guilty pleasure. It was kind of, it was kind of off the wall, but I couldn't stop watching it anyway. Um, Right. I feel like, in a lot of ways, like the OC was a love letter to Orange County and Newport Beach. Gossip Girl was very much a love letter to New York's Upper East Side and Manhattanites. And we do get kind of similar wide shots of the city um, and the skyscrapers and the New York City traffic in a very similar fashion to that. We got the wide shots of the beaches and the cliffs and um, the mountains on the OC. But as Alex mentioned, it is very much a heightened reality. Um, it's a every time I stop and ask myself, is this real life? And sometimes I think that it very well might be. And I'll explain my thoughts on this. On the OC, we had a very obscenely rich um, group of people, but. Um, Sandy and, and Kirsten, especially Sandy, was very much a down-to-earth kind of salt-of-the-earth, um, old-school principles type of guy. And I think that the presence of these parents grounded everything. I think about the OC if this couple had been removed and we just had the Julie Coopers and the Caleb Nichols and the um, the even Marissa's dad, um, like, I think it would would have felt like a similar heightened reality to what we got on Gossip Girl. And on Gossip Girl, you know, we had the presence of Dan's father, Rufus, which is the closest we got to a quote unquote normal parent. All of these parents, I feel, were like caricatures of like, you know, the wealthy elite. And that's what made every situation seem so hyper dramatic. Mm, I think I agree with part of that. I think, yeah. You do have the parents, but the parents aren't the only grounding force of, like, why God, I think why the OC feels, I think, real versus Gossip Girl feeling, like, really flighty. I think on the OC, like, you have the characters, like, when the characters, when, like, when an event, when an event happens, an incident happens, and then, uh they move on the characters like remember that like there's there's a def- there's a definitive like remembrance of um oh you did a bad thing and like they then play out the actual consequences of that bad thing um and that history exists between them that's sort of why 
Ryan and Marissa are so torturous to watch um, because they have all that history. And mm-hmm. I think OC remembers all that history. Um, whereas Gossip Girl doesn't have that. Um, Gossip Girl, like, the characters will do bad things or silly things, and then they'll just be like, ugh. And then the show will pretend that it never happened and move on. I also think that there's, like, the this element of, like, school and, like, caring about school and, like, caring about education and, like, caring about where you go to college, that's very present on the OC. Um, And that also sort of helps to, like, really ground the show in reality. Whereas, like, I I don't know if those kids ever go to school on Gossip Girl. Like, I think they they do. (laughs) They do, but, like, just, like, barely. And so without that sort of grounding force of school, everything's allowed to sort of get flighty. As well as, like, there are small little details that I think the OC adheres to that Gossip Girl doesn't. And an example would be, so on the OC, Ryan works. Uh, he has an after-school job. See, and that's other, other things. Like, Ryan has, like, an after-school job. I don't think anybody on Gossip Girl has an after-school job. But, like, Ryan has an after-school job at, at like, this, at, like, the the bait shop. I think that's what it's called. Or, yeah. yeah. It is. And at the bait shop, and there's an episode where he... Like, I think Caleb's, like, new wife or girlfriend or whatever comes and she's like, oh, let me get, like, a vodka cranberry. And Ryan, like, looks at her and he's like, I can't serve you alcohol. Like, I'm under 21. Like, it's little. And, like, whereas I on Gossip Girl, you know, these, like, 17-year-olds are going to bars and, like, ordering drinks and people are serving them. And then and then the end. So it's it's small little. It's, like little small details that sort of like really ground the OC where that I think Gossip Girl ignores those details and then that the show just feels like in Mars um I agree with that I mean it's like I mentioned when we reviewed the Vampire Diaries and the originals there is this um this pattern of you know you want there should be, if you want your characters to develop like, you know, sane people, um, love, grief, and accountability, um, that the characters of the OC were held to that standard. And with Gossip Girl, it was very much the um, 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 uh, a non-supernatural version of what the characters in TVD were doing, which is, you know, everyone's expected to just move on rapidly and forget about the past and characters went through rapid rebrands not really um being held accountable for anything but just rebrands um school is another big one because i feel like with the exception of serena vander woodson those kids were in school school just wasn't a major fix fixture on the show um and i think gossip girl is the show that really really started that trend of shows about teenagers that almost never showed them in school. Like how many episodes are they actually in class or even in the hallways? You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. Um, Fair. And then pretty little liars like did the same thing. The only time we saw those kids in school was when a was sending them like a a, a cryptic text. (laughs) Right. Whereas like at the OC, like they're always at Harbor. Like they're always there. Right. The Harvard School is like a central hub. And I, I like it used to be a thing. Right. It used to be a thing. I'm t- I'm, th- I'm going way back to like shows like Dawson's Creek, My So-Called Life, even Buffy, where we saw the cast at school often. <laughs> like right. 
it wasn't just like some background thing that was talked about, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I agree with that. Like the kids had no sort of grounding. You bringing up the, the bar situation was a big one because I remember watching the show and the first time they went to a bar in order to drink, I was like, this is weird. Why is no one carding them? And then after it happened a few times, I became desensitized to it. And this was a thing that happened on Pretty Little Liars. It was a thing that happened in TVD where teenagers would just go to bars. And I'm like, have they stopped carding teenagers at bars? <laughs> right. And it's no, like, and if there, and I think if there had been something at the, like on Gossip Girl that maybe somebody goes to card them and then like, just like a not something big just like a super small moment if there had been like a small moment on gossip girl where like somebody goes to card blair or someone and then somebody else comes and they're like oh no 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 don't like that's eleanor waldorf's daughter that's like the owner's daughter like don't you don't want to fuck you know that could mean your livelihood well then that would then that would have explained it and i think i would have bought that better and that was better i think established for me like the sort of on like the sort of vast unearned like privilege and power these 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 rich kids can like have over other people's lives yeah that would have actually made more sense because it is actually something that they do quite often and over and 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 um covert ways on the show where they just like flex their wealth and flex their connections um at people that they deem lesser um especially when we're talking about like the blairs and chucks of this world um this mm-hmm. they do this quite often Another thing um, I remember vividly from season one, actually, was Chuck wanting to buy, like, this cabaret bar. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Like, Chuck, you're 17. You cannot buy a bar. Bars need a liquor license. You can't get one. <laughs> right. So, right. <laughs> like, so it's like, what do you... And and like like we said, if there had... There just needed to... It need, it's not that I don't think I, I couldn't have gotten on board. I think it would have just helped had there been some sort of like, you know, Chuck wants to buy the bar, but really his dad is buying it. Like, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and then there needed to be more like, like establishment that like, it's really these, these children's like parents, like that are doing all of these sort of things. Right. But they like, see what Alex is saying actually would have made more sense in like the real world in which real people live. But like the show framed it as Chuck wants to buy this bar from his dad and his dad, not the law or anything <laughs> right. is, what sta- is what's standing in his way. <laughs> right. Buying this. Bar. <laughs> like, like, fam. What? like I even remember watching party of five. Um, throwback, remember Party of Five? I remember watching Party of Five, which was like a really big show in the 90s. The the second eldest brother, Bailey, um, is running the family restaurant and bar. And someone um, you know, puts out an anonymous tip, like a rival bar from a rival restaurant from across the street, puts in this anonymous tip because he's serving drinks and he's only 20. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just like, I had literally like just finished watching Party of Five for the first time. And I jump into Gossip Girl and I'm like, where do these people live? <laughs> right? Like, what? <laughs> so uh, it's funny that we talk about how Gossip Girl is like a letter, 
a love letter to New York. And I do think the the sort of establishing the establishing shots and like the B-roll that we show are like really wonderful and beautiful. But I don't think I get I think visually I don't really feel like on Gossip Girl, I don't feel like that deep love for like New York. I think it's a landscape that I feel for for OC. Um, I think that's a tourist thing. We love like natural scenery and greenery and oceans and shit. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. All right, fair. Um, I mean, I do think there are some shots. Like, I think there are some that like I think later in the series that I'm like, okay, like these are like really interesting. But I think this first season. Not until I, I, like the Hamptons stuff, I do actually think is actually quite wonderful. Like when they go to the Hamptons, a lot of that, a lot of those shots and like a lot of the visual decisions made there are like really wonderful. But when we get back into the the, the city, I feel like they don't utilize some of the city's landscapes as well as they could have until the later seasons. Yeah, that's real. Um, I agree with that. And I mean, if I'm honest with myself, I know when I'm looking at those city shots, I don't like I'm in the same camp as Alex. I don't feel pulled into it. And um, I don't feel as emotionally caught up in the landscape as I did when I watched the OC. But I also know that's because like, if I'm honest, I would gladly live in New York because it's a great place for a writer or a creative to live. But if I think about the place where my heart wants to be, the place that would give me peace of mind, the 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 you know the place that would be a feast for my eyes. It would be Newport Beach. Newport Beach. <laughs> but Fair. come on, I'm not trying to look at these skyscrapers for the rest of my life. For the rest of your life. <laughs> no, that's true. That's fair. Um, like like I said, I think there there are certain things like we'll get to them and we'll get to them, but um, in in later seasons that I I actually think are really well done, but. So season one is is really good. It's it's what eighteen episodes long. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty short season order. And you want to talk about some of the introductions of these characters for a bit? Oh yeah. So um, Gossip Girl. We recently talked about this when we talked when we um, talked about Amazon Prime's The Boys, and how I said that. I really, it was one of the best pilots I'd seen because it, it, it sets up the structure of the show really well. Gossip Girl might be the antithesis of that. The way the pilot sets up certain people and then the way the show quickly rebrands and reframes them is really quite jarring. It's like, it gives you whiplash. I'm not even kidding. So one of the primary characters in the primary cast, basically the Gossip Girl's equivalent of the core four, is Dan, Serena, Chuck, and Blair. Chuck is introduced to us as a rapist. First episode. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> then we Chuck gets like a quick rebrand, quick reframe, and I'm just like, pause. I'm pause. supposed to root for this person now? I'm supposed to root for you now? Fam, I can't do it. I can't do it. Um, Serena is also framed as like a really, really shitty friend to Blair. And it's implied in that first season that the reason she left town was because of the guilt that she felt for fucking Blair's boyfriend, Nate. 
Um, it does. Try, the show tries really hard to again rebrand her like Chuck, but her rebrand kind of falls through the cracks because throughout the series, Serena showcases herself as a very selfish individual. Um, right. <laughs> Sorry. Really quick about Serena. The Serena from from the beginning is sort of framed as like this very and uh and and oh my god, this very like mysterious and uh figure who did something crazy and like had to leave like we're introduced to uh, her like via the the gossip girl voiceover and just like oh serena spotted at grand central like what's gonna happen now that serena's back and then she is on the show and she's just this very like bland very shallow person even when she does her quote-unquote like sort of heel turn i think mid-season one on blair it's very like, eh. like <laughs> we never sort of see this like dark Serena figure reemerge like ever through the I think the run of the series. Right. Um. It's like you know they. It's very much set up that way that Serena's an enigma. But as soon as Serena's thrown into our eye line, right, and she becomes integral, you know, in that first episode, that pilot episode, we realize there's no mystery around this girl. Everyone really knows her life. Everyone yeah. knows her, her shit. <laughs> like there, there, there is nothing like, here's the thing. So Gossip Girl was released in 2007. TVD, Vampire Diaries, was released in 2009. And I absolutely believe that seeing a character be rebranded like this with no form of accountability was direct inspiration for how characters like Damon Salvatore and then later Klaus Michelson were um, rebranded as, you know, protagonists and heroes on those shows. Gossip Girl really was the blueprint that showed us that it could be done. You could really just rebrand a character um, and and get the other central characters behind them and not really make them do any work at all. Yeah, right. No, fair. Like, I'm just like, again, the Chuck rebrand was jarring, um, but the Serena rebrand, it never really hit. It never really hit, you guys. Um, Because, like, yeah, like, he tries to rape two different women, like, in a span of one episode. (laughs) Like, that's very, that's a lot to, like, ask the audience. I feel like that's so much to ask the audience to forgive. And yet, the show goes for it, and they go for it so hard. Right. And how do you do this in a pilot episode and not expect us to carry animosity for this person? A pilot's job is to set up the characters either as A, as they should be received, or B, as part of a larger plan to, um, you know, um, throw in a plot twist where this person has been engaging in some type of subterfuge or manipulation from the beginning. Um, you can't do what they did with Chuck and like have that be okay. And you know, Alex and I have talked about bad fans, quote unquote, and the Gossip Girl was o- overflow with with them, with people who were te- who are Team Chuck and have always been Team Chuck. And I'm like, nah, <laughs> um, nah, no. Um, and so then we have, um, so we have Serena. We've got Blair who even from, I think, Blair from the beginning, is she's this very, very mean girl. But um, I I like her. I mean, shout out to Leighton Meester, who I think really does the amazing work from beginning to end. I don't know that I'm rooting for Blair, but I do see her as a very complicated figure from the beginning. 
And then there's Dan, who just, I don't know, Dan. <sighs> Dan, Dan, Dan. Um, back on Blair real quick, I will say that the Blair was probably the only character that the pilot successfully set up set us up for. Like they do a lot a really good job of showcasing Blair's like outer persona as well as some of her um hidden insecurities in that very first episode. Nate Archibald is also done really well in that first episode, even if his character is underutilized for the duration of the series. Right. Um but yeah, everybody else, I was like, womp, womp. Um, right. Season one also introduced us to our token characters. We had a token gay character who was also deeply underutilized, Serena's little brother, Eric. Mm-hmm. And we had a token biracial girl, Vanessa, who was also underutilized and showed up at the most inopportune times only to jet back off to help orphans in Haiti or whatever her story was that day. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. She, she would only show up long enough to like stir up some drama, settle some drama, and dip. Dip, right? And then we also have Dan's like younger younger sister Jenny, who I think has a a great arc. Um, but I I think they sort of wet blanket her a bit at at points. I agree with that. Um, Jenny Jenny was kind of done dirty, and again, this is a thing. Um, Josh Schwartz did this on the OC as well. We had Marissa's um, little sister, Caitlin, oh, even more tragically underutilized than Eric and Jenny ever were. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> and it's funny because I I, I want to say that initially I, I the show sort of learned from that because Eric and Jenny are given like these sort of like plot lines to, to thrust them into the story from the beginning. Eric being um, recovering from like her his sort of suicide attempt and then Jenny trying to fit into Constance and being one of Blair's minions um and trying to climb this social ladder but the show along the way just I think where where they sustain Jenny they forget about Eric unfortunately yeah i agree with that and even Jenny i mean Taylor Momsen wanted off the show at one point. And I think that's why in, in later seasons, we don't get to see Jenny in the amount of scenes and, and time that we would like, but Eric, there really was no excuse for the way that they pretty much shelved Eric. Right. Um, There just was no excuse for that. Um, But season one, you know, it it threw us a a few curveballs. We had the rebranding of Chuck the Rapist. Um, (laughs) We had um, um, Dan getting with Serena and then his best friend, Vanessa, entering the situation. And it was that, you know, that classic trope of the girl best friend who's in love with with um, the guy she's best friends with. um, And that created some friction. But the biggest source of friction was the fact that... um, um, Lily, Serena's mother, and Rufus, Dan's mother, had been um, had had these feelings for each other for several decades now, and they were gonna make a go of it one more time, right? But they realized that their kids were in love, so Lily calls it quits, and she marries Bart Bass, Chuck's father. Right, and then another sort of, and you know, we keep talking about this Chuck rebrand, and this Chuck rebrand really happens, and and I and for and succeeds. Um, due to this plotline of him and Blair 
getting together and him and Blair sort of discovering like romantic feelings for each other. And cause that takes us through that whole first half of the season in that Blair is with Nate, but Nate is sort of feeling for Serena and Blair um, loses her virginity to Chuck. And Chuck realizes, I guess that he feels for her. And then when Chuck sort of, arranges events for Blair's cotillion to be ruined. Blair, you know, dumps Chuck and like runs back to Nate again, who has a renewed interest in her due to her sort of uh, disregard of him. And that carries all the way through to like episode 13, a thin line between Chuck and Nate when like everybody finds out and we have this sort of reckoning for Blair who has been, you know, the the top mean queen and is then uh dethroned via have essentially over like slut shaming in that like she had sex with both Nate and Chuck in, in a small short term period and uh is then taken off the crown for that reason. Girl, but I mean, what is the grace period supposed to be? Are you supposed to wait two weeks, three weeks, a month between dicks? Like, <laughs> listen, whatever. You know what? But like, this is, but you know what, though? This is, and this is why, like, Nate Archibald is so, like, I, you guys, Nate, I think the show tries to, um, the, I think the show tries to say, have a point of view about class, what that point of view is. I I really don't know, to be honest, because I feel like it's always changing. But (laughs) this is but a thin line between Chuck and Nate. And when Blair sleeps with both of them, this is why Nate Archibald is the true moral center of this show. I think the show wants it to be Dan. It's not Dan. It's really actually Nate. When Nate finds out that Blair slept with both him and Chuck, Nate's first instinct is to go fuck up Chuck like right which is right it's his first like instinct is like how dare you when you know that like in in essentially putting the responsibility on Chuck like I'm in and putting the well putting the brunt of the responsibility and like the anger on Chuck being like you're my friend like you should have known better like you should have like like, I know you do this to other people, but we know that we don't do this to each other. And, like, you, and Chuck is rightfully, like, reprimanded. He's like, listen, like, you didn't like her. Like, it was a thing. He goes, like, that's not the point. Like, the point is, is, like, you knew that we were getting back together. You did these sort of shady things anyway. Like, how, like, I thought your our friendship meant more. And then when it comes to Blair, just sort of very calmly being like, listen, I just need some time. Like, which that in itself is is actually really, really cool, I think. Whether the show intentionally did that or not, I can't say. <laughs> I really can't say. But I, I did like that about it. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, personally, I wouldn't say that Nate is the moral center of the show, although he's definitely one of the more likable um, characters on the show. Um, the moral care for me, the moral compass of the show is actually Serena's brother, Eric. He's the one that people flock to when they need that good advice. They need that wisdom. They need, they need that hard truth. Like, like it got to the point where 
you know, as Alex said, Jenny and Eric had like decent plot lines in the beginning, but then Eric was phased out only to be called upon when someone had fucked their shit up and they needed advice. So it, it, it kind of became like that where he was relegated to like the wise gay um, friend to a lot of these people. Um, not to say that Nate Archibald is at all a bad person. Um, you know, Nate makes mistakes like everybody does, but I feel that what makes Nate different from the rest of like the core cast is that he's someone who's able to hold himself accountable in a way that none of the other characters can, because they're really good about like calling each other out on their shit. Right. But how many of them are honest with themselves apart from Nate Archibald? (laughs) That's fair. I guess I don't, I guess like Nate is always like, I feel like his, because that's true. Like Eric does go do advice, but by I think third season, that's sort of over with. Cause then we have like, we have two, three episodes that go by without seeing Eric, but we always see Nate and Nate, um, Nate's moral compass is always very much pointing towards North. Like I think Nate's instinct is always like, okay, but like, is this hurting anybody? Like, are you like, you're hurting? Like, so is it really a problem? Like, right are you he always makes the right choice for like himself and others and i just i'm i that's a hill i'll die on i think i wouldn't say he always makes the right choice but i think what separates him from the other characters is that he has a desire to make the the right choice and he does hold himself accountable when he makes the wrong choice um which none of the other characters do. Like, they just don't. They're not about that life. They're not here for, like, taking inventory of their mistakes. And they're not here for thinking about how their decisions might hurt others around them. Um, I don't see Nate Archibald um, as that character who always does the right thing, but he wants to. And in a show like this, intent matters because no one else has those type of intentions. The cast is full of... Um, unbelievably selfish people. And as Alex said earlier, Dan Humphrey is not the exception to the rule. He is supposed to be like the moral center, but he never really is. He's just a social climber who's a bit less wealthy than the rest of them. <laughs> right. And, the, and that's why he is. And I, and, and this is like why I'm always confused about what the show is like trying to, to say in terms of class. Cause I think the OC was actually very clear about what it had to say about about class and and being poor versus being rich and like the difference that can make when you have like the proper resources. I think they did that well and they did it clearly. But Gossip Girl, I'm never. I don't know because the whole thing is like Dan and Jenny are like from Brooklyn, but and but their father is like a former like 90s rock star. So I guess there he's living off of um, his royalties and probably living off being a songwriter. And uh, girl, it, '90s Rufus ain't that young. He's an '80s rock star, y'all. <laughs> well, they say that. Well, they always say that. Like the show always says, Lincoln Hawk, which is the band Rufus is in, is like one of the top forgotten bands of the '90s. So, um, Aww, like poor baby. So. I'm assuming he's living off his royalties. And then it's like, I don't know if you've been to, like, if you go to Brooklyn, only rich white people live there. And, like, the specific area where they live, Dumbo, that's all, like, billionaires. Like, 
like and like Hathaway lives in Dumbo. Like so it's not like poor people live in Dumbo. So I'm never quite so whenever they're like, oh Dumbo, you're poor, like I'm not quite sure what the show is trying to say. Right. Dan is by no means Orion Atwood, you guys. He wasn't living in squalor. He it, it was it was literally a situation where like the millionaire is envious of the billionaires and we're supposed to feel for him. Right. And I think they're like if I'm give like my if I give it like a best faith read, I think they're trying to talk about or have a perspective on the difference between like old money and new money and um, old money, new money, and then money that's like, that feels and money that they dismiss because Serena, Serena and Nate and Blair are, um, I mean, are all of them are old money. Blair Don't forget be- Chuck. <laughs> no, Chuck. That's the thing. Chuck isn't old money. Chuck is new money. Um, Bart Bass is is very much new money in the show. Does talk about it how he that how Bart was born poor and essentially like was made himself um, the youngest billionaire by like fifty or whatever. Bart Bart is very much new money and Chuck is new money and he talks about it in um, Victor Victrola episode eight. He talks about Chuck is like, if you didn't want me to have things, why did you work so hard to be who you are? Like, if you were just going to, like, always berate me for for being for being who I am, which is born rich, Um, because that's always the contention between Chuck and Bart is that uh, Bart had to work and Chuck doesn't. Um, yeah, you're right. Okay. So I did miss, um, I did, or it must've slipped my mind that part that Bass did work for the money. But in that case, I don't see the show as making, uh, even a, a distinction between old money and new money because Bart is very much accepted. The Basses are very much accepted into the old money circle. I think it's the type of money and how you earn it. Right. He is an established businessman. Rufus is just a musician and musician he might as well be a, a servant as far as they're concerned you know right and that's like why he, bart made his money the right way so that's why they, they they fuck with him they don't even care how new his money is he made it in a way that is respectable to the elite to the people they they network with and that's why i think that and that's why i say and that's why i mean the show is confusing because you do have instances where like blair in particular because blair's old money but like blair's but Blair's mother, but they work still, but they are old money. And Blair will all sometimes, like, if she's feeling like, you know, particularly catty, will sort of make these remarks to Chuck about, like, mm, well, Chuck, God, looks like that new money can't buy you class. Like, to, like, mm-hmm. always sort of remind him of his new money status. Like, that he's not, that Chuck isn't really, really one of them. Like, they hang out with him, but, like, don't and that's why I'm saying but don't get comfortable and that's why it's sort of confusing it's why like I don't really know what the show is and like it's a fault of the show the show never makes it clear what they're trying to say right and here's the thing about you know um Chuck Bass and his father versus Rufus and Dan 
Rufus and Dan are constantly hit with those jabs of not only are um, is Rufus new money, but he his money isn't long enough, and they right. constantly remind both him and his son. No one steps to Bart Bass like he's not going to take your shit. So they kind of have to like get their little get their little snide remarks in on Chuck because Bart is untouchable. His money stretches long enough that he has um you know affixed his place in their society so if they want to you know vent their little frustrations that he's managed to breach their inner circle they have to do it through his son yeah it's just it's just one of the it's just one of, it's one of the myriad i think i'm not like it's one of the many themes i think of the that the show never yeah it, it, it can never really make its choice or it it I don't think the show really knows what itself what it's trying to say. It, I think the show was trying to be like we're complicated. Being wealthy is complicated. <laughs> yeah, right. It it doesn't really. It never. It just never gets there. Um. But anyway, season one is like, uh, for my mind is is good actually. I think once you get into these, particularly like past episode thirteen, I think it really picks up. I think for the most part, the narrative is, is like clear desperately they're all there are a lot of really good episodes for me what about you for me season one was basic i'll be very honest with you basic bordering on bad i honestly can't tell you what kept me in season one other than the aesthetics of the show because you know i do i do have an eye and a love for really well put together outfits um things like hair and makeup some minor details like that move me as a viewer um the writing was just womp womp and real lackluster for me so i would say the aesthetics and the soundtrack are, are what kept me in season one and just the over-the-top dramatics um but it was very basic for me right fair um, if I had to pick some must-see episodes of season one, I'm going to go with The Wild Brunch, Bad News Blair, Victor Victrola, 17 Candles, High Society, A Thin Line Between Chuck and Nate, Desperately Seeking Serena, Woman on the Verge, and Much I Do About Nothing. All right, so let's jump into season two. Season two was um, distinctly longer. It was 25 episodes long. And um, for me, it was um, it was significantly better than season one, to be very honest with you. <laughs> yeah, season two is like when Gossip Girl gets in its bag. Like, uh, I that's true. I feel like there's, I think it gets increasingly sillier, but it's still like I probably the best season of the series in my in my mind. Um, I agree with that. Like it's here's the thing. When Alex says it has a lot going on, like when we there's a spectrum of a lot. There's like um like really, really, really slow shows, and then you have like a TVD a lot at the end of the spectrum. And Gossip Girl was like right in the middle. So it wasn't yeah. like it wasn't an exhausting a lot. It was just a lot. And it was, it was they had 25 episodes to put it in. And it was really cool. So season one, um, these kids had been um, in their senior year of high school, which was an interesting place to start a series, to be very honest with you. they Most series usually started in ninth or 10th grade. Oh, no, they're in their junior year because they're taking SATs. And then season right, two right. was senior year. 
you're right you're right right um most most shows really start these type high school shows in like ninth or tenth grade that way we can get a long stretch because they never really know how to transition into college right right and gossip girl they're in their senior year season two some of the highlights of season two are that lily's struggling in her marriage no shit you don't want to marry this man and bart bass is a complete asshole now that is a character that was set up right in season one you guys it never deviates from the script bart bass is not someone to be fucked with and he's not a nice person blair wanted to go to yale and dan wanted to go to yale she was not accepted dan was but couldn't afford it i don't know how if i really buy that he couldn't afford it line but go off so they both end up at nyu with his friend vanessa and um Let's see. Um, Nate's father basically pulls a Jimmy Cooper. Remember Mar- Marissa's father from the OC, you guys? He fumbles the family bag. <laughs> and now um, Nate is forced to go to a married duchess named Catherine and basically get money to keep his family afloat because his father fucked up the family bag, like set it on fire. Right. And like he fucks up like their immediate family bag but like their like dynastic family bag is very much intact which we'll we'll find out later i think in the season in season two like which thank thank goodness he didn't have access to (laughs) right like he because the money because the money um he he even got is from nate's grandfather and that's there's like a whole thing there about how like the grandfather is basically the one that has like the real real money he's got like that you know mayflower Mm -hmm. slave prison labor money like it's it's like it's it's long 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 and let's be very real if i meet a white man with the name archibald you better have some fucking money you better have money like (laughs) i just i don't even know what that means if you don't like what are you even doing with your life life? (laughs) like no excuses Archibald is a name that screams insanely wealthy. I, I absolutely. Um, so season two, we sort of we like go all in on um, just I guess these characters and and what they're doing and and we. I like I said, I actually think season two is really great in terms of how it's like plotted and paced. Like it's enough like you said, it's enough to to keep me interested without being too much. It falls right in the middle of that. It's a lot. I'm trying to Oh, so something I do want to talk about is uh jenny's storyline where i think jenny's sort of done really dirty jenny's like sort of wet blanketed and so the plot is essentially uh jenny you know is really into you know fashion and she's been interning for eleanor all summer and she's been you know focused very focused creatively she wants to to and she's been focused creatively to the point where uh, in a previous episode a dress that Jenny made is mistakenly put on um, a model and it's and it goes down the runway in Eleanor's show and it's the m- most well received piece of the entire show 
So it's clear that Jenny has, you know, something that is um, substantive in, in what she's doing. So Jenny, you know, decides like, you know, she wants to homeschool. She, she wants to homeschool. She wants to work full time for Eleanor. She doesn't want to be at Constance anymore. She wants to do this because she's, you know, focused. And the show just like, like, shits on Jenny <laughs> like the show kind of shits on Jenny and that they they make they make it so that like what actually ends up happening is like Eleanor is like stealing her designs essentially and passing them off as her own and uh Jenny is then berated and then when Jenny finds out that Eleanor has been stealing her designs Jenny is sort of like and Jenny decides well I'm just gonna go out on my own because like if you're stealing my shit, like it must be worth something. And um, she does, she ends up throwing this fashion show and getting a lot of traction. But then like, I guess like the show berates her for thinking she's, she's shit. Cause they ultimately have her fail. And it's like the worst. It's like, for me, like one of the worst storylines. Cause I, it essentially punishes a, a talented young woman for believing in herself. <laughs> And like really sticking to her creative vision. I agree with that. Um, this was absolutely a scenario where a character, though, like the writers, not even like the characters on the show, but like the writers themselves were trying to put a character in their place. Um, it really felt that way. Like, how dare you be talented? How dare you want to be independent? How dare you want to pursue your dream? Little girl, sit down over there. Um, right. And it was like, it was, it was definitely like a slap across the face. It was a reprimand, not just for Jenny, but the audience, because we saw Jenny's talent and we were invested in her too. Jenny could have been a really inspirational, motivational character on a show where all the other girls were just overly invested in their relationships and their petty little lives. And the show took that away from us. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's this, Jenny's plotline is one where it's, it's not about, it's probably one of the few plot lines of the show where, like, it's not about a boy. Like, it's not about, like, you know, she's in love or some bullshit. Like, you know, she has this vision. Like, she's, you know, learning in, at the school of, of hard knocks. And she's succeeding. And it and I think it, and particularly, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense for them to write Jenny failing at this because they had already previously established Jenny in season one as someone who was naturally smart and and gifted and a go-getter in that. Whereas Dan always felt like he was too good to like bow and scrape, I guess, and at the bottom uh, of, of a social climber. Jenny knew the game and played it. Like Jenny was like, I am confident enough that I can, roll the dice and play this game and I'm going to do it. Um, And we see that with her sort of going head to head with Blair. Um, And so the fact that the show then punishes her for like being like, fuck this, like I of having this sort of coming of age of having this sort of realization that I don't really have to bounce her to anybody when I have the juice, like I'm going to go for it. It, Oh God, it, it, feels so mean it's just mean and i don't get it is it. very mean um here's the thing too like like alex said jenny wasn't afraid to hustle and to network things that dan thought he was above um right but 
one of the the key aspects of Jenny's personality is Jenny would keep on trying. Like you can't, you can't keep Jenny down. Even when she found out Eleanor was stealing from her, this would be enough to take the wind out of a lot of people's sails, have them feeling defeated, would have their head bowed. She saw this as, okay, my shit is good enough to steal deuces. I'm out. I'm um, out. Yeah. And the thing about the, the what the Jenny plot line really did, which I'm sure was unintentional, but it was pretty. It left a permanent stain on the Blair character for me because Jen, Jenny's failure and Blair's reaction to Jenny's failure only made me dislike Blair more. Uh, what's what's the reaction to what's Blair's reaction when Jenny like doesn't when Jenny's fashion career doesn't work out? It's not an immediate reaction. It's in later season when she's mad at Jenny over some shit having to do with her gross rapist man, Chuck. Oh, okay. Um, she throws in Jenny's face Jenny's failure. Oh. And it's like, listen, this 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 wound is still very open. Stop throwing salt in it for me. <laughs> right. That's fair. Fair, fair. Um, so also something that ha- starts to happen, I think, in season two that I really love that... I only sort of caught it like on the rewatch um, is this like relationship that develops. I, I this friendship that's be- starts to begin to develop um, between Blair and Dan, um, a sort of a uh, forced friendship, um, but a friendship nonetheless um, that really, that we do start to sort of see in season two around, around the same time of this Jenny storyline, actually. Like, Dan is, like, giving her advice. Um, and then we sort of see, like, a moment between Dan and Blair in season one as well during, like, Bad News Blair. Um, and I love it. It's just great. <laughs> yeah, I always thought that Blair and Dan's friendship was actually really good. And even though it seemed forced at first, it's probably one of the more organic relationships on the show because they weren't thrown in the same spaces by you know their wealthy parents right so they could just like grow wealthy together it was forced at first and then she realized she enjoyed his company he realized he enjoyed her company she even gives him that very cute nickname well not nickname but she calls him by his last name she always calls him humphrey she's the only person that calls him um humphrey in like um in an endearing fashion and you know this kind of sets the narrative up that Blair's a bitch with options you guys like Chuck is is very much um an avoidant personality type in relationships the more Blair wants him the more he feels consumed by it all and tries to pull away from her and season two is them basically struggling to admit these feelings because Blair wants to but she doesn't want to be hurt by um you know Chuck and um his um his aversion to relationships um so weird how he's averse to relationships and not averse to rape um <clears throat> moving on um right um, another good relationship that actually forms is between lily and chuck where um yeah she she legally adopts him and in their relationship you see that he's gotten the kind of um love and consideration that he never got from his father and that he's been like hungry for right right exactly and that's also something it's funny all of the relationships that i think are sort of that are like off quote unquote maybe off 
brand, like Lily and Chuck and Dan and Blair, like on the rewatch, you sort of realize they had been building from a, a long time ago. And there are shades of like Lily and, and Chuck uh, and their relationship to each other from all the way from season one, where uh, Chuck, where Lily is probably the only like kind force in Chuck's life. Uh, yeah, sort of kind, uh, un, un, unwanting and un in Chuck's life. Right. Um, so some major plot lines in season two, we find out that Lily had had a secret love child um, with Rufus that she gave up for adoption without any knowledge um, on his part that she'd ever been pregnant. And we also um, see um, Bart Bass ends up dying. I use the term dying loosely ends up dying um and um rufus and lily start to see each other again and these are like the major plots on like the adult side of things um which i thought it was interesting that the show still in a manner similar to the oc shows you that the adults have their own lives and gives them their own plot lines um which is a trend that dies very very quickly by i want to say 2008 2009 in other shows like the adults literally just exist to um further the plot of the children or the teenagers but they these adults still have their own plot lines which was interesting um and yeah season two i felt that season two was actually a really good season yeah season two is great like um and like Coming back to Bart dying for a minute, I think the worst sort of part about, like, Bart dying is, like, at least in my sense, is that, like, we spend, we end up spending all this time with Chuck, and then we end up spending all this time with, like, Blair, like, emotionally laboring for Chuck and working so hard to, like, fix it and, like, make it better. And I'm just like, gross, like, what has he ever done for you, Blair? Girl, no, I'm serious when I say that they ripped this shit. Like, TVD ripped this shit from the Gossip Girl handbook. Like, Chuck's rebrand and using this girl's feelings for him to rebrand him. This is exactly what they did with Damon. They used Elena's feelings for him to rebrand him. All that emotional labor every time he's going through some sad shit or he throws a tantrum. This is what Elena did for Damon. These are are very similar relationships. I mean, at least Damon saved Elena's life a couple times. Chuck really wasn't here for Blair in a lot of ways that were vital to her and vital to the growth of a healthy relationship. No. Yeah, that's it. That's correct. I've got nothing else. (laughs) So how do you feel about season two? Good, bad, or basic? Uh, I think season two is is good. I think there's a lot going. I think it's fine. Um, there are some really fun episodes. We we get to see like Army Hammer shows up this season, so that's fun. Um, oh man, I'd almost forgotten him. Um, right, <laughs> with like Poppy Lifton um, in Southern Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. He's very much there, and that's 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 all fun and good. Right. Um, yeah, this was a really good season. Um, I think it's probably, yeah, that's actually, I think the best season of Gossip Girl was season two. Yeah, I would say so as well. Season two. Um, if I had to pick some must see episodes from season two, I would say one summer kind of wonderful seven check in real life, eight predator J nine. There might be blood. Uh, the Magnificent Archibalds, 
Oh brother, where bart thou in the realm of basses? You've got Yale, the remains of the J, the grandfather, Southern gentlemen prefer blondes, and the goodbye gossip girl. Um, yeah, those are really good episodes. So I agree with those. I mean, season two, like I said, it was the best season. I feel like it was the most cohesive season. Um, and um, probably the better, the best that the writing on the show ever was. Ever was. was. On season two, was on season two. Like, yeah. I'm not even being shady with you guys. I really feel like the strength of the, sh- the, the show's um, small but very very vocal viewing audience and the way it was able to brand itself on social media um, as well as the strength of season two was how they were able to like secure four more seasons right I think um, if you're if you're interested like in Gossip Girl just as like a, a in terms of like a relic of, of his pop culture um, historically and thinking about it in that way I think you could watch the entirety of season two alone and get the gist of like what the show is about. Agreed. So let's jump into season three. Now season three, I don't think was the best season, but for me, it was the most fun, entertaining season. Um, this season had 22 episodes and they it's official. Everybody's in college except Serena, who's doing her white girl shit and trying to find herself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Chuck and um, Blair are official, but Rocky, Blair, Dan, and Vanessa are officially at NYU. And Vanessa's new friend, Scott, just happens to be half-brother to Dan, Jenny, Serena, and Eric because he is Lily and Rufus's love child. So we have a lot of very soap opera-esque storylines happening. Like the lost half-brother thing is a very common soap opera trope. So this made the season really, really fun to watch because they had so many soap opera antics in what is essentially a teen soap opera. Right. Um, Yeah, the show goes full soap. Um... Yeah, I don't, I don't. I don't disagree with any of that. <laughs> um, so, go ahead. Is, sorry, it is fun. Like we do get some uh, some more like fun guest stars in like Hillary Duff shows up this season, and sorry, and Sebastian Stan, um, also like now known as like Bucky from like the the Marvel the Marvel movies, um, is back sort of this season and in sort of extended plot lines, um, but yeah. Okay, so Alex left out a critical piece of information. Hillary Duff showed up to have a threesome with Dan and Vanessa. That's why she showed up. <laughs> That's what she it's, it's very important to say why she was here, you guys. She, I was like, why not? But yeah, so she showed up. Um, I think she, her 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 character was a singer as well. Um, and she was what is it? She was she had like put her career on pause to attend NYU. Yeah, she she put her yeah. She was like a famous actress, like that was a child actress and like, but wanted to go to college and then like put her career on hold so she could go to college. So you know how sometimes people are in struggling relationships and you're like, let's have a threesome so that they can attempt to save their relationship. Well, um, Dan and Vanessa, um, had to engage in a threesome to realize they even wanted a relationship in the first place. Like after, after fucking another person together, they realize they should be together. (laughs) 
it was interesting and it was mad forced um without that that third wheel buffer of a former child actress um i wasn't here for it i actually thought that jessica soar who plays vanessa had better chemistry with hillary duff than she did with penn badgley who played dan yeah so yeah dan and vanessa get together this season and it's just it's so lacking it really felt like the writers trying to throw Vanessa a bone, if I'm being very honest with you. I feel like they're all, and I feel like that's a continued theme throughout, like, the series. That I feel like they work really hard to try to throw Vanessa bones, and it never, it never quite works out for whatever reason. Um, Because it's very obvious they're throwing her bones, and everyone else is being thrown like filet mignon yeah and, it, and i mean they're not she's not the only character they neglect i think season three is when you start to really see like you know this awkward transition i think this is also where you really start to see like they just stop caring about nate like yeah um, and they've been stopped caring about eric by this point right they've eric has gone probably several episodes without a single solitary um mention um the bigger plots, I think the, the lion's sheriff, I think the plots always, for whatever reason, revolve around Chuck and Blair and Serena, for whatever reason. Um, Chuck sort of discovers this season that, like, his mother, quote-unquote mother, I put that mother in quotations, is, like, alive. And, and this is, and season three is where the show really starts to, like, go off the rails is because um we talk about you know school sort of being that grounding force and it can be like that grounding force in shows like these but like these kids are like never in class like ever mm-hmm. um they all sort of end up and you know Serena's supposed to go to brown blair ends up going to nyu serena eventually ends up going to columbia so does blair uh Chuck is supposed to be at Yale, but he's not. He's just in New York. Um, Can we take a moment and appreciate the fact that Serena, who was never in school and always like sleeping off a bender for most of season one, got into Brown, but Blair couldn't get into Yale? Oh, yeah. Like, and I... (laughs) And I hate the reason why, like... I sort of hate the reasoning as to, like, why... Blair like didn't get into the Yale she essentially fumbles it because I guess she's too high strung or like she's nervous in the interview and she's just whatever but like there's no universe that like Blair doesn't get into Yale like (laughs) she's rich she's white she loves the school she's a legacy right she's a legacy Mm -hmm. and we know how important legacies are um she would have gotten into Yale like she would have and let's be very clear in academic circles, like she, she like you guys, she wasn't in an audition to be in a, a damn movie in academic circles. Nervousness is often read as intelligence. Right. Yeah. I just, I don't get it. And then instead season three, it's more of Blair. She's at NYU. She's struggling. She's still laboring for Chuck emotionally. Like, uh, poor, like Blair. And then, I like and I root for, but like, my gosh, this continue, like this, this like endlessness of her, like laboring for him gets so like exhaustive, I think in this season. 
Y'all, I swear to you, I feel like the writers of TVD and the originals studied the trajectory of Gossip Girl and 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 basically use a lot of their material as a springboard because this basically making and you this is a term you use when we talked about the originals making these women like basically handmaidens to these male characters and doing all this emotional labor is a staple on those shows um on on gossip girl at least it was just a staple for this one person and this one relationship because she never had to do this with nate or dan right and none of the other women were doing it it was literally just Blair doing this for Chuck and then Chuck rewards her by trying to sell her for a hotel. Right. He, (laughs) he, yeah, his rewards are always like, um, just like then giving like a sliver of like love back to her. And I wonder, and listen, I think if like the show had talked about how like maybe Blair is so invested in this relationship because um, it's a relationship that sort of mirrors the one that she has to her mother and that like her mother is, is has already like been pre-established in the show as this very withholding this emotionally withholding figure and emotionally mm-hmm. manipulative figure. Um, there is a point, there's an episode in previous seasons where Eleanor like, triggers Blair's sort of eating disorder intentionally. If if the show had sort of like stated like that's the reason why Blair is so wrapped up in Chuck is that like it's essentially like a she's trying to to get the love that her mother like has always sort of withheld from her, then maybe I would I could have gotten on board with with a lot of it. Like I could have as long as the end result had been like her sort of freeing herself from that. But it's just, no, it's supposed to be read as something like super romantic and it's, it's not, it's just like, it's, it's tiring. Right. Um, I agree with what Alex said. I mean, this is a remark that I have made on other shows that we have reviewed specifically the OC where Ryan falls into this relationship with Marissa, basically replicating his relationship with his mom who has, you know, the same substance issues and with whom he falls into the same role of fixer, helper, um, cleaner upper, you know, Blair's relationship with Chuck is absolutely a mirror of her relationship with her mom, you know, and every time he gives her that sliver of love, it also fills a subconscious void for the love that her mother withheld from her. The thing about that though, is that when you think about it from this lens, even even if Chuck didn't go the extra mile of not just withholding emotion, but like doing things like thinking he could trade Blair off for assets, even if he didn't go that extra mile of of being like cementing his status as a complete asshole, this relationship isn't healthy for her. She cannot be with someone like Chuck because she is not someone who is in a place where they have to work for love. Um, Blair has learned in an early age that you have to earn love and work for love and labor for love, um, even when the person is not meeting you halfway by any stretch of the imagination. Um, And this very toxic relationship being like the primary um, pairing on the show was like... (sighs) really unsettling i'll just yeah. say that unsettling it's fair it's it is it's just it's unsettling 
you know what? Backtrack. This is the season also where like Serena like has <laughs> has sex with like Nate's cousin, who's like a politician. Who child? That was a hot ass mess. That was a, a married a mess. married politician at that. Uh, so Mar- <laughs> and it's wild. It's you guys. Just a wild let me tell you what my problem with Serena is. And I, I said this to Alex in a private discussion. So I'm going to like give y'all the cliff notes. Serena is a character that is unlikable because from beginning to end, we never see her do anything that's not selfish. Even Chuck manages rare moments of selflessness that Serena never quite reaches. She's not a good partner. She's not a good friend. Putting aside that she slept with every guy on the show that she's not related to, because I'm not going to slut shame this girl, all of her relationships have been crafted around who's most infatuated with her at that moment. So Serena's somebody who likes being doted on and adored, but she calls herself in love with everybody and then very quickly moves on from this quote unquote love. Serena's feelings when it comes to romantic relationships can be turned on and off like a light switch. It's very, very polarizing to me as someone who feels things deeply and feels that if you say those words to someone, I love you, then you should feel them deeply as well. So the whole storyline with Nate's cousin, I don't even know how it started. I I still feel like I was thrown into this shit. But anyway, she ends up being with this guy. He's a married politician. Nate tries to talk some sense into her, tries to, you know, you know, drive home the point that she is going, you know, she's helping him hurt his wife. Um, This isn't going to end well for her. This guy's my cousin. I know him. Um, He's not going to like be there for you. She completely dismisses it. I'm in love. I'm in love. When the truth is, she just loves how infatuated this guy is with her. And then they get into a terrible car accident. She realizes he's trash. And then she goes running back to Nate. And now she's in love with him again. It's ridiculous. Right. It's really ridiculous. And so it's it's nuts. It's banana nuts. And, and it's just, but it's, it's, it's trademark Serena. What are you going to do? Like, right. like, I mean, the whole thing was just like, does this girl know how to love question? The right. only person she seems truly invested in as a, a figure who is not invested in her and someone whose affections she has pursued is her deadbeat ass absentee father. Right. Who won't come back this season, but will come back. But who who she does try to find, I think, this season, but he doesn't really come back until next season mm-hmm. and we find out who he is for real, for real. So what do we think of season three? Season three is like I don't I don't I think it's bad. I think you have you have Blair acting out really out of character, and then you eventually get this Chuck and Jenny situation where Jenny loses her virginity to Chuck, which is horrible because he's her would-be rapist, and it's just the worst. Mm-hmm. And and she's underage. And she's underage. Even Serena didn't have sex with Chuck. Like you know, like right. And and you know, Serena's just into anybody who's into her. Um, we have this. Uh, yeah, I think it's just. I think it's. I, I think it's bad. 
Yeah, that whole situation with Chuck and Jenny was also another thing that made me dislike Blair more because after that, Blair you know, pretty much started acting and talking to Jenny like she was some sort of homewrecker. Like, how dare you sleep with Chuck? Like, no, how dare your man not even be able to wait two hours when he thinks you stood him up um, before falling into bed with this little girl? And, like, and standing him up, like, rightly, because it's not like he's really done anything to, like, deserve. Right. But she didn't stand him up, though. Her maid, Dorota, went into labor, remember? Right, yeah. Dorota went into labor, and because... Dorota is somebody who's been like a one since day one. Like she's the she's the realest in the room. Like Dorota's um, Blair's only real family besides her stepfather Cyrus. She's the only person that really cares about Blair. She really is, and and there are shadows of this that like this show alludes to. Like even Blair herself like recognizes this. She very briefly, but she recognizes it, and she makes a comment about it, I think in an earlier season. And she says where Blair says like, it must be so hard for you, like watching me grow up. Like, and I'm about to go away to school and she's not talking to Eleanor, but she's talking to Dorota. Um, Right. Right. And even earlier when Dorota had gotten married and she learned that Dorota was going to be moving out. Like she, Blair had real depression and separation anxiety about this. Um, like, like Dorota was moving across town after she had gotten married, but Blair is like, you're not going to be here. Like, you're not going to live here anymore. She's like, I'm still going to work for you. And Blair's like, it's not the same because she knows who her family is. (laughs) Right. Like it's, it's one of those rare moments of of self-aware awareness from Blair. Um, uh, well not that Blair isn't self-aware. She just, uh, she uses denial as like a deep coping mechanism. So uh, yeah, she she had she had was supposed to meet Chuck and Dorota went into labor and she did what she had to do. And by the time she left the hospital and um went to where they were supposed to meet, like three hours later, he had already fallen into bed with Jenny. Right. And like that's <laughs> that's his issue, babe. Like that has nothing like you need to and you need to just let that go. Let let it let it go. And I guess we're supposed to it's it's supposed to read as like tragic to the audience because then um on the final ep- on the season three finale like last tango then paris you know chuck once again sort of regresses and goes back to sort of his his zero and we see that like he has this like engagement ring in his pocket and like that the whole point was that he was gonna ask blair to marry him but re-watching it i'm just sort of like good for you blair you dodged a bullet fam <laughs> like right like and this is a, a trope that might be as old as television itself like the man is trash but you're supposed but but like the prize is the ring so if he proposes you're supposed to ignore that he's trash and basically make yourself legally and contractually and socially tied to the trash for the rest of your fucking life. Nah, right. sis. Nah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I I agree with that. <laughs> I don't know that I'm feeling that life. No. Um, but season three, if I had to, had to, had to pick some quintessential episodes, I want to say Dan DeFlorette, Rufus Getting Married, uh, How to Succeed in Bassness, The Grandfather Part 2, they shoot Humphreys, don't they? The Hurt Locket, the 16-year-old version, virgin, uh, the unblairable lightness of being, Inglorious Bastards, 
bat like Chuck Bass bastards. And then last Tingo, then Paris. Yeah, those are all great episodes. Um, as far as I'm concerned, season three was was basic, but it was also really fun. I don't think it was bad. Um, I do understand that it was basic. I enjoyed it nonetheless because we all have our inner basic bitch. And mine came out and flourished while watching <laughs> season three. She was living, you guys. She was living for this drama. Same. Um, <laughs> good. I think it's fine. <laughs> Uh, there you have it, folks. This is everything that made the first half of Gossip Girl good, bad, basic, and unforgettable. The situations and characters of Gossip Girl were almost comically dramatic, and that's what kept us coming back week after week. If you want to either check out or relive the series, it's currently streaming on Netflix. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our patrons-exclusive Gossip Girl-inspired Spotify playlist. And tune in next week when we'll be finishing our recap of this landmark series. Until then, look out for the next episode in our Patrons Only Gone Too Soon series, which airs this Saturday, featuring the WB's short-lived family drama, Jack and Bobby. Em and I will be discussing what made the one and only season of this lost wonder so unique. Follow the good, the bad, the basic pod on Spotify to listen to all of our regular weekly episodes on the go. If you love this sort of content, spread the word and become a show producer and patron on Patreon. Your support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly content as well as exclusive bonus material. As always, be sure to check out our SoundCloud page, The Good, The Bad, The Basic. And of course, be sure to follow us at Good, Bad, Basic Pod on Twitter. Until next time. Bye, Bye, everyone. everyone. <laughs>